Dealing with Diagnosis on this edition of Truth and Love. I'm Dale Johnson, and you're listening to Truth and Love, a podcast of the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, where we seek to provide biblical solutions to the problems that people face. This is the month of May, and we are beginning uh, what has become a tradition here at ACBC on the Truth and Love podcast. We're going to talk about Mental Health Awareness Month, and we don't do this to celebrate Mental Health Awareness Month. We do this to provide biblical wisdom in our therapeutic culture, in our therapeutic age, as it relates to all the secular topics of mental health, mental illness, and that sort of thing. Now, I could not be more excited about this month. We actually get five Mondays to release issues related to mental health. And I'm looking forward to the next several weeks. We have some really good guys lined up to talk about some very specific topics like OCD and emotional focus therapy to give critiques on those things, to give biblical wisdom as we think about issues related to that. But that'll be in the coming weeks. And so I hope you're engaged throughout the month of May hearing the the particular podcast that we talk about. I think it'll be very practical for you. It'll it'll challenge you in so many ways to engage the scriptures as we think about and hear and rub up against all of the the diagnoses that we hear from mental health that's so common and popular in our given culture. I want to start today talking about this issue of mental disorder diagnosis. And when we think about diagnosis, obviously we think about the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. That is the Bible of Psychiatry. We've talked at length on this podcast uh, about that particular book, and I'm sure we will have many, many more discussions as it comes up in the future. The DSM-5 actually just created a revision, so obviously we'll be talking about some of those things as it comes up here in the future. But, but today, I want us to talk, in some cases, a little bit more practical. David Pallison wrote an article years ago that was so helpful, and it's still really, really helpful. We can include that in the show notes to today's show, How to Counsel a Psychologized Counselee. I want to talk very practically today on sort of where we stand now. Many of you who engage in biblical counseling, those of you who are certified members, and you engage in biblical counseling, there's high likelihood that you are going to engage someone who has been diagnosed with some sort of mental disorder. Why do I say something like that? Well, the reason is because John Hopkins put out research in 2020, basically stating that 25% of Americans have a diagnosable mental disorder in any given year. That's, that's one in four. So, I mean, to think about that with the people that you interact with on a daily basis, if we were to utilize the construction of the DSM, the criteria that is built, what we're looking at is one in four people. Now, the most diagnosed disorders are in the category of anxiety disorders, and these are disorders which include things like OCD. I mentioned we'll be talking about that in the subsequent weeks during Mental Health Awareness Month. And it also includes things like generalized anxiety disorder, socialized anxiety disorder. And it's really important that we pay attention to what's happening relative to diagnoses. They are becoming inflated. They are growing in popularity. And part of that is a strategy that you see from the world of mental health to destigmatize these things that we call diagnoses or disorders, mental disorders. And one of the reasons that we see a stigma that arises with disorders, th- this is something that the 
the APA, the American Psychiatric Association, has been fighting for a, a while. This has been a stain on their approach to mental health is the issue of stigmas that arise. And when you have one in four people, part of the goal is if, if more people are diagnosed, then it begins to remove the stigma that's associated with diagnosis. Now, why do I describe something like that? For us as biblical counselors, th there's a high likelihood that the people that you counsel will have some sort of diagnosis. So you need to have some familiarity with the diagnosis that they're given. When, when I talk about the diagnosis, for example, if someone comes into me and they have some sort of diagnosis uh, of some sort of mental disorder, I, I like to be aware of that. I actually then go to the DSM and I want to read the criteria. That, that helps me to understand a couple of things. Number one, it helps me to understand specifically what experiences that they've had, how somebody saw them and understood their story and gave them some sort of label that fits certain criteria, that, that they've experienced certain groups of symptoms in their life. It also helps me to understand their perspective on what they believe is wrong with them or why they struggle with certain issues that they find themselves struggling with in life. And that sets a context for me. Now, I don't immediately go after those types of diagnoses. I don't, I don't often even deal with those particular things, but it lets me know the types of symptoms and problems and experiences that a person is having. And, and what I try to do is, is learn to then ask questions in such a way that, that draws out those experiences. And then what I try and do is help them to understand their experiences from the Scripture primarily, because I believe, as David Pallison famously said, that the Bible explains our human experiences better than any other system. And so that, that's sort of the direction. Now, the question, getting back to the issue of, of stigma, why is it that these mental disorders, even still today, even though they become very popular and widespread and you see the inflation of diagnosis all over the place with one in four people, Americans, being diagnosable in their experiences, why do we still see the issue of, of stigmatization? I think this is an important thing for us to consider is those who have mental health, uh, diagnosable mental health disorders, there is still a stigma associated with that. And what you'll see if you, if you read about Mental Health Awareness Month is they encourage people to just, just talk about these things in, in, in a therapeutic way, just to describe and to talk about the issues that they have with mental health. And part of that goal in talking through those issues is uh, what they want to do is destigmatize the issue as if it's, it's something that's okay. But we have to realize one of the things that's driving that stigmatization is, and I talked about this on the podcast before, is the church has contributed to that stigmatization because we, we've allowed those diagnoses to be something that's separate and other outside of the church as if the church cannot deal with those particular issues that a person is struggling with in life. And so I think it's important that we regain confidence in the Word, that the Word describes those experiences better, and that, yes, we are primarily called to engage people who have those symptoms, who have those types of experiences in life that are even considered diagnosable. Now, one of the things that I think is really critical for us to consider is, is why are these diagnoses so stigmatized? Why is it that people feel this way? And there are a lot of explanations for this. One primary explanation, I think, is uh, people certainly see this as, as something that is a deficit to them. 
this hinders their functionality in life. One primary thing that I think is missing is the way in which we've reduced these problems to biological explanations. And we've done this in our culture, particularly since the 1980s, for sure. And I want you to hear, but we're not the only culture that has tried to minimize or reduce explanation of our problems to simple bi- biological means or biological causes. In, in fact, psychopharmacology has been used to some degree for many, many centuries. I want to read you a quote from a, a book that I think is, is really important work. Uh, it's called The 300 Years of Psychiatry, and it's by Ida McAlpin and Richard Hunter. And this is one of the things that they say. We, we often get sort of myopic in our view, thinking that what's happening today is, is what's always happened, or it's happening more intensely today, and this has never occurred before. But you'll hear from these guys that, that this is exactly something that has happened in our, in our history in the past. This is what they say. Each age indulges in the conceit that nervous disorders are on the increase because of the complexity of its civilization with its discontents. The seventh century had its sleepers and pills to purge melancholy. The 18th century, its specific medicines. And the 19th century, its composing pills and herbaceous tranquilizers. And most of those concoctions were mixtures of alcohol and laxatives. Now, I bring that up just to simply say that our attempts at trying to reduce this, these problems of man to something that's biological and, and simply throw medicine at it. It is not new to our age. I think we just feel more advanced and scientific in our approach to that. So as you hear that from this book, 300 Years of Psychiatry, it's really interesting to me, how, how are we to, to make out or to understand what's going on in psychopharmacology right now. I've recently been reading this book by a man named Edward Shorter, who's a very committed biological psychiatrist. He teaches the history of medicine, the history of psychiatry at the University of Toronto. He's written this new book that came out, I think it was the end of last year, 2021, uh, The Rise and Fall of the Age of Psychopharmacology. And I, I think it's important for us to hear him as a committed biological psychiatrist. He's describing what he calls the rise of psychopharmacology, which he would pinpoint really post-1955, and then it builds into its heyday, really 1980s, 90s, early 2000s, and and he's seeing a digression in that. Because of the subjectivity of mental health diagnoses and the the lack of efficacy that we see with the psychopharmacology that's used, listen to the way in which he describes a part of the fall of psychopharmacology. This comes directly from his book. This is what he says, and I quote, psychiatric drugs are still prescribed today in massive numbers, yet the frame is shifting. Observers increasingly recognize that the intellectual paradigm of neurotransmitters and their reuptake has been exhausted, that there are no new drugs in the pipeline, and indeed that no new drug classes or novel mechanisms have been conceived for decades. The field's Professional literature, at least that regarding drug trials, has been hopelessly corrupted, and the prescribing of an endless chain of SSRIs is something you don't actually need specialty training in psychiatry to do. Nor, for that matter, as a psychologist increasingly clamor, do you need a medical degree to do it. 
Now, those are some interesting statements from a guy who is very committed to biological psychiatry. In fact, he wrote a history of psychiatry in which he he favors that that perspective of biological psychiatry. Yet here he's saying that it's essentially that this whole approach is is quite bankrupt. In fact, arguing consistent with what he says here, about 80% of psychopharmaceuticals are are prescribed by general practitioners. And, and so that that research actually affirms some of the things that, that Shorter is saying. And, and this is a part of what increases the stigma that we see. The, the stigma actually remains because the diagnosis is is really often assumed to be the same as some sort of biological cause, when in reality, the diagnosis that are given are often very, very subjective. And you know, the, the offering of a pill to correct something that was a supposed chemical imbalance, it raises some issue of, of stigma with it. Now, I want to talk specifically about this issue of, of diagnosis as well. I want to bring in Alan Francis to talk about this particular issue because I think it's so important. Now, you remember Alan Francis is, is not a God-fearer, but he was the, the leader of the dsm 4 task force. He was the chairman who actually helped write the specific criteria that created the DSM-4, which was released in 1994 in its first edition and then in subsequent revisions. And, and here's one of the things that I think is so important regarding what he says about diagnoses. He says, there are no biological tests in psychiatry. And then he gives a caveat, with the exception of tests regarding dementia that are essentially just looking at fMRIs and, and the, the shape of the brain and trying to understand what is operating in the brain and, and not. So get back to the quote. He says, there are no biological tests in psychiatry. None are in the pipeline for at least the next decade. Psychiatric diagnosis depends completely on subjective judgments that are necessarily fallible. They should always be tentative and must constantly be tested as you know the patient better and see how the course evolves. Now, I find that statement from him exceedingly interesting because what often happens is, is even in the biblical counseling movement, I think we have a tendency to want to be deferential to a secular system. And most people in our culture are swimming in a stream that assumes the therapeutic language. They assume the, the therapeutic worldview. And what I mean by that is they assume that, that biblical counseling has to catch up to the advancements that are found within the mental health system, the therapeutic system. And I think we're giving them too much ground in assumption when we talk about the issue of psychopharmacology in diagnosis, when we talk about the issue of diagnosing itself and how subjective that is. And you're hearing one of the primary psychiatrists for the last 20 years warn people against the subjective nature. I've heard psychiatrists describe that when they hear some of the symptoms that people are experiencing, that, that often they can diagnose them with three, four, maybe even five diagnoses from the DSM. And we have to ask ourselves, what's driving this? What is pushing the envelope here? What, what forces us to continue to move forward? Well, certainly we have to wonder, is it is it the economics that, that, or the capitalism that's driving this, some of this corruption within the mental health system? I think for us as biblical counselors, we need to be confident that, no, the, the biblical counseling doesn't need to, quote unquote, catch up to the advancements of where the mental health world is. I think we need to understand where the mental health world is and understand it as, as a subjective approach 
to people and their problems, not to give it the credence of some sort of upper echelon of science to which many of the experts within the field would would question, at least at this point, the things that we truly know about the problems that people face in life. We can't just reduce problems of humanity down to simply psychological issues or biological issues. Uh, We are holistic beings, and we have to be able to incorporate the beauty of our image of God in man in how we think about human problems is so, such a critical thing for us. So we have to be cautious about premature diagnosis. This is something that Alan Francis warns about constantly, in part because premature diagnosis was fueled by capitalistic gains. If you think about someone who relies upon their, their well-being, their, their living, their financial security is dependent upon offering a diagnosis in order to be re- reimbursed by a third party. So I'm not saying that people are corrupt in doing that. What I'm saying is that the, the system itself demands a premature diagnosis being given when some of the experts are warning that we should be cautious because of the subjective nature of diagnosis that's given. Let me give you one more thing from Alan Francis that I think is, is, is really critical in this topic as well when we think about diagnosis. He says, how simple it would be if our patient's symptoms conformed closely with the neat little packages that are contained in the DSM definitions. But real life is always so much more complicated than what is written down on paper. And can we just say amen to that? That he's absolutely right, that the complexities of life, the dynamics of human life, yes, including body and soul, are so much more complex than the simplicity of basic subjective criteria that's written down on a piece of paper. And so I don't want you to fear those particular diagnoses as you counsel people inevitably who are diagnosable or who have been diagnosed. I want us to be confident. Now, how are we to think about this? Oftentimes when we, when we hear people with a diagnosis, we need to have a specific aim. We, we can be confident that the Bible explains their symptoms, their experiences, their problems, certainly better, and gives better answers because the Bible is going to help them to understand that they can be made new, not just cope with the certain issues that they have. So if we were to describe the cultural milieu or the, the environment in which we, are, we currently find ourselves in, one of the reasons that diagnoses are, are very popular is what Carl Truman calls the psychological self. We, we live in an environment where descriptions of modern man have changed drastically. In fact, I love the way that, that Carl Truman describes this. He uses Philip Reef and Charles Taylor's understanding of the modern self. This is what he says, how they describe it, that psychological categories and an inward focus are the hallmarks of being a modern person. He goes on to describe that that this is what Charles Taylor would say is expressive individualism. Now, I think that's so important that this is a part of what we're constantly fighting against. People gain their identity by expressing their feelings from the inside out. It's not the ways in which we are committed to things outwardly or the identity that Christ gives us from the outside as he makes us inwardly new, and then we live in that reality. We live in that identity. Our culture is swimming in completely the opposite direction in what Carl Truman calls the the psychological self, in wanting to express ourselves individually 
I think we need to be very aware of this cultural milieu. I think we need to be very aware of the tide that's flowing here and and how people approach us even. And really when they approach religious things, what they're trying to do is often perform to gain an identity as opposed to live as a result of their identity. And the fruit of their identity becomes those religious actions, attitudes, and and uh, moral leanings. We're doing something totally different with people in the culture today, and so we need to know what we're up against, what 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 strongholds we're tearing down within people in order to build them back up into the beauty and the purity of the gospel of Christ. Let me let me describe this whole section the way that Carl Truman gives it to us in his new book that he calls The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. This is what he says when he talks about the, the current milieu of people, the, the current trajectory and the way people think about themselves. He says it like this, it is actually the result of the slow but steady psychologizing of the self and the triumph of inward-directed therapeutic categories over traditional outward-directed educational philosophies. That which hinders my outward expression of my inner feelings, that which challenges or attempts to falsify my psychological beliefs about myself and thus to disturb my sense of inner well-being, is by definition harmful and to be rejected. And that means that traditional institutions must be transformed to conform to the psychological self, not vice versa, end quote. Now, what, what Carl Truman is describing here, I think explains why our culture is growing in diagnostic inflation. It explains that we want to have labels that give expression to who we are and how we feel on the inside. And then we are hypersensitive and hyper offended when when people oppose that because we believe that they're opposing our identity, not false beliefs. So what confidence do we have? You, you know, the scriptures should give us all the confidence in the world that it is, as Peter would say, a more sure thing than even his own experience as he walked with the Lord. But but listen to what the Proverbs say. You know, we we put a lot of hope in what the mental health world can produce for us that gives us some sort of Gnostic-like insight. I think we need to be cautious about that. Listen to what the proverb says that we can do. The, the purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. That's Proverbs 20, verse 5. We have the ability with the Word and the power of the Holy Spirit, that the power of the Holy Spirit by the Word can unveil the hearts of people. And not just unveil it, not just unveil it in in a a way of conviction as to what's going on in the heart, but also in a way of transformation, so much so that we believe that the beauty of the gospel of Christ is transformative for people, not just simply a coping mechanism, not just a motivating factor to perform better to create some sort of new identity. No, the gospel of Christ recreates us into a new identity from which now we can flourish to walk at peace with God and other people and be settled in the dynamics of our heart in our inner man. And that's the ability that that we have, empowered by the Spirit, with the Word of God, because the Holy Spirit is the transforming agent. And we can't allow the philosophies of the mental health world to overtake the responsibility that the Scripture gives to His Word 
and to his Holy Spirit to accomplish the work that only he can accomplish in the recesses of the inner man. You're listening to Truth and Love, a podcast of ACBC. Now, part of what I've been describing today is this issue of of anthropology. Uh, Our culture has radically altered the way we think about man. You know, that's exactly one of the things that we want to address specifically at our annual conference this year in his image, October 3rd through the 5th in Memphis, Tennessee. We, We want to address this issue of anthropology. And as Anthropology has been redefined in secular terms. We've seen the degradation and expressions, the sinful expressions of humanity that often bring up many, many counseling issues. We need to be prepared for that. We need to reclaim the beauty of God's description of mankind as being created in His image and valuable. Listen, this is going to be an exciting time when we're in Memphis. We are already breaking records as far as numbers of people who who will be in attendance at this conference. We have about 1,500 people who will be in person already, and we, we are still months and months and months away from the actual event. We have 300 people who will be joining us in a hybrid format online. Listen, I want to encourage you to, to join us in Memphis, Tennessee, as we talk about this important issue. It is becoming pervasive, the way that we think about human beings, and we're seeing it expressed in so many ways in our culture here in the Western world. And so I want us to be prepared biblically, and that's exactly what we're going to tackle. So will you join us? Go find out more information about our annual conference, October 3rd through the 5th, in His Image, in Memphis, Tennessee, at biblicalcounseling.com. Mm-hmm.